Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. And Pete Watkins won. Deep left field. Swarmer takes a look. And it's out of here. Number 12 for Pete Alonso, and it's 5-0 New York. Again, the 1-2. He struck him out at the ball game. It's over. 101 up in the zone. Castellanos foul tips it for strike three. Diaz strikes out three in the ninth for the save. That's hooked down the right field line. It's deep toward the corner. It is gone. Home run. Jeff McNeil. A three-run shot into the Coca-Cola corner. The raindrops don't stop the Mets. They put up three in the bottom of the fourth. It is a four to two Mets lead. And these fans are getting soaked and they're getting delirious now. That ball is ripped to right. Is it fair? Yes, it is. And we are tied. What a moment for Nick Plummer. Escobar in the right. That's going to get down. That's going to win for the Mets. Eduardo Escobar with the catch and now the key hit. And the Mets walk it off here on Memorial Day weekend. Chopper to the right of the mound. And the Army with the only play. He's out. And Rizzo went sharply. Oh. Great play, Guillaume. Sidearm to second. And they turn the double play. Oh, wow. Oh, Luis Guillaume on fire. Lindor lights one. That's a base hit. And that'll bring in two runs. 
Nito and Canna come in to score. Lindor keeps the RBI streak going. Now nine straight games driving in a run. And the Mets have broken the doors off this game. It's now eight to nothing. And the breaking ball into center. That'll get the run in. Tagging it third is Nito. He'll come down the line to score. Three nothing New York. And Francisco Lindor becomes just the second Met. Ever to drive in runs in 10 straight games. He joins Mike Piazza, who did it twice. One, two coming. He struck him out, and the ball game is over. Back to back shutouts for the Mets. They sweep a six game homestand, taking three from the Nationals. 21 consecutive scoreless innings for the Mets pitching staff. Huge day for Tomas Nito as he catches a shutout, drives in three runs, and goes four for four as the Mets beat the Nats 5 0. of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Wednesday, June the 1st, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Sylvia. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and of course, I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, as well as RisingApple.com. Well, you guys don't think I'm cool all the time. I could tell. I see the tweets. I get the emails. I see the old Gen X, you know, call me a baby boomer. I'm not a baby boomer. You guys think I'm some old fart here, you know, get off my lawn, no home run celebrations, all this other stuff, but... After a hugely successful, I mean, a perfect homestand, tons of fun moments. You heard the highlights coming in. What better way to splice that intro? I mean, what better way to splice that intro than to put a little of the old OC intro song? You guys remember the OC? It might be 20 years old, but you remember it. I'm sure there's a few of you in the audience that watched it. And if you didn't watch it, maybe your kids watched it. But what better way? California, here we come. Mets coming off a perfect 6-0 homestand. Stop the fight. Stop the fight. It was almost like Rocky. What is that? Rocky Four with Apollo Creed. Stop the fight. Stop the fight. The Nats, I mean, they, could, they couldn't get out of New York fast enough. They first, you know, they try to come and, and they get a little spunky there that first game. And the Mets bludgeon them with 13 runs. And then they basically take the rest of the, the series off. Get a sleepy series. Mets pitching stymie them. A three-game sweep. Great dramatic wins against the Phillies, especially on Sunday, right before Memorial Day. There's not many times that you come on to this show where you hear me this giddy. Where I mean, listen, and and I'm all about Buck. Buck is the the voice of reason, and I love how he's putting it to the media here and saying, uh, "Hey, another day, another game, on to tomorrow." Like he's the one dousing the enthusiasm because you can see even the media is getting excited. I'm excited. You're excited, and I'm usually the balanced one here. But I mean, let's face it: for the last three days, at least, the, the Mets were basically the globetrotters here. You knew they were going to win. I mean, 
you could not do this show today any other way. I mean, I could have still done the intro, but that little capper of Diaz, I mean, it went perfectly. Ah, what a great way to start the show. I hope you guys are having a a, a great week. Uh, Obviously, I came to you because of Sunday Night Baseball and the Memorial Day holiday, and I hope you had a great holiday uh, watching baseball, you know, eating steaks, burgers, veggie burgers, whatever you're into. And and here I come to you uh, the night of the last game of the homestand and then right before a big West Coast trip, L.A., San Diego, L.A. Angels are struggling, so who knows what that's going to be all about. Padres and Dodgers, obviously the class of the West. Some say maybe the class of the National League. And the Mets finally tied percentage-wise as I come to you uh, with the Dodgers for the best record in the National League. And, and a true test is coming up here. So... Uh, and also, look, I come to you on this day, and we'll get to that in a little bit. It's a secondary thing, and that's what happens when you have a, a good team. You know, if the Mets are a bad team, the whole Santana Day, 10-year anniversary of the Santana no-hitter, and we, I feel like we did a little of that with the no-hitter from a few weeks ago when the, when the Mets no-hit the Phillies. We kind of dived a little into that, but I'll, get, and I'll, I'll give you some of my memories and thoughts about that. But when you're a bad team and that you don't want to talk about the team, you, you go into history. The history is going to kind of fit into this show. So anyway, tons to talk about. Can't wait to get to it. Um, You all know, and I've been saying this, how I break up the season. I'm going to say it again if you're listening for the first time. The first 50 games or so is the getting to know you phase. Who are these? What are these New York Mets? You know, you know, who's Buck, you know, at this point in his career? There's all sorts of different things that we've been looking at. We're past that phase. We know who this team is. Then we get into the... Well, what do they need phase, which we're in now, and we're going to learn a little bit more uh, about the team maybe, but we really will see what the Mets need because they're going to go up against the best that the National League can offer, and we're really going to see what all the injuries and the thunderbolts that they've been hit with. Can they withstand this? So far they have. And, uh, you know, if they get these injured players back, I know we don't want to talk like that, what kind of team, you know, can they be at that point? And then, of course, it's the go get them at that point, the last third of the season. Go out. Make your postseason uh, position, win the division, and then at that point when you're in the playoffs, it's a get it done or go home. So we kind of, not kind of, we know who this team is. It's a tough team. It's a professional team. It's a team that does a lot of the little things. In some ways, and I've said this, if you go back to all the shows, the sum is greater than its parts at times. Sometimes you get... It's like, you know, a can of dink here and a home run there and a Guillaume play here and a good bullpen performance there, and a big out here. And, and, and in a, you know, an analytics has created this where you start to look at some players against ERA+, plus, OPS+, plus, WO whatever, WXL whatever. I'm not anti-stats. I'm just saying it gets silly. And throughout the winter, that's what we have to build a team. But when it really comes down to it, it's hitters that could do a lot of little things. It's pitchers making big pitches understanding who the hitter is, what the situation is, et cetera, et cetera. And this team does all that. I think that's the most refreshing part. If there's a team that does all the little professional things that we've been waiting for, and I've compared them in recent weeks to some of the the late 90s Yankees teams who were great teams and had really Hall of Fame players, but also did a lot of unsexy little things that added up and frustrated the absolute heck out of you. And... I mean, you don't think Joe Girardi and the Phillies were frustrated? I mean, is that not out of a Yankee playbook, Nick Plummer getting called up from Syracuse and hitting a home run to tie the game? I mean, that's the stuff that used to happen to the Mets all the time. And now it's happening for them, at least now. The best part about all this is that, it's like what I just said, 
their manager who, you know, maybe now we could appreciate these Buck Showalters and Jimmy Leland's and Dusty Bakers. And if you want to go back, Davey Johnson's and all these managers that maybe we took for granted back in the day before Moneyball, before it became the middle manager, the boring, you know, anybody. Mike Silva could manage these guys. All you got to do is take the lineup card from the front office and we're going to play stratomatic baseball and real baseball. Maybe you could appreciate how hard it is to manage in baseball and how important it is for players to have a leader that really balances them out, you know, understands them, customizes, motivates, um, teaches, holds them accountable. I mean, at the end of the day, a team makes a covenant to go together and each individual player maximizes their potential, whatever that is. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to hang out. It's great that you could talk baseball and be at the bar and, like Keith says, rehash the game. But at the end, it's about knowing your job and your role and and doing it to the best of your ability within the scope of the team. And all of a sudden, you have what you see here. The sum is greater than its parts. And what I like about Buck is, as I said, the media has been the ones, and the fans, of course, the fans are going to get giddy. But the media is getting giddy. And he's like, hey, it's another game. Take it day by day. He's not letting this team get overhyped. You heard Mark Canna talk after the game yesterday. He's the most matter-of-fact guy. I mean, if there's a guy on the team, when you hear him get interviewed, listen to a Mark Canna interview. It's like, hey, um, well, I'm doing my job, basically. I mean, that's what it is. Listen, I mean, go back. If you could grab uh, his interview with Gelbs after the game yesterday. It's boring. It's, it's, but it's not cliche. It's like, hey, I'm doing my job, man. What, what do you want? It's no different than you or I. And Buck is continuing to keep them grounded by talking about the challenge ahead. Look, the Nationals, this is over. The Mets didn't win anything this last three days. These were a fun, great three days. This was a perfect homestand. This is going to be something when the season ends, regardless, you're going to remember fondly of this stretch. You have fun stretches where, hey, you know, enjoy it. Like I said, baseball, and we'll get to that later with the Santana no hitter. Baseball is the sport where no matter what, it's in these little compartmentalized little portions where you have to enjoy them and hopefully they add up and they build up and all of a sudden they you know become this really great thing what you've seen a team that's handed been handed thunderbolts major thunderbolts but i told you in spring training that degrom and scherzer would probably together degrom would be nearly half a season and scherzer would miss two months a third of the season you would say oh my god here we go but they've taken these thunderbolts in the past that have really did them in, embraced them, thrived, and now, to a certain degree, they're immune to them. I mean, you got guys like Trevor Williams and Colin Holderman, uh, Drew Smith, you know, go on and on and on, doing their thing. I mean, outside of Zapucky, who had a, a, a spit-the-bit kind of outing, everybody who's filled in has done something to contribute in a big way. So it's a hugely important foundation, and it cannot come at a better time because, look, I don't know what's going to happen on the West Coast, and odds are the Mets are going to cool down, and maybe they'll come back down to earth, and I think you'd sign up for a 500 road trip. I think you would. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I, what is it? It's, is it's four, it's 10 games, right? So you get five and five. Let me make sure I, I get, it, get it right here. So, uh, you know, you got a five and five road trip. Just like I said the last time, they had three and three when they went to Colorado and uh, San Francisco, and, like, and you say it before, and then you're like, oh, no, I really wanted, you know how it goes. But you take the 5-5 five and five road trip, maybe you split with the Dodgers, maybe you'll lose one of the two series between the Padres and the Angels, so you go 3-3 three and three in those series, 
And, and away you go, and then you come home, and you got more tests. You got the Brewers, a top team in the Central. And look, I know the Marlins are at the bottom of the division, but they're going to be pesky. They got good young pitching, and it seems like the Mets always have a, a battle. And then you got the Astros <laughs> coming later in the month. So you've got a lot of big time baseball to play. Few days off, which is going to help this team, which is going to help them as they try to get into July and and hopefully get back some of their key players. So, what I think in the end, you never want to ask for adversity. You don't want to ask for thunderbolts. You want the perfect season and the perfect health. But when you get them, and you will, and you thrive how the Mets have, the sky's the limit. Forget about what the playoff odds are, what it says on paper, all this other nonsense. The sky's the limit. And I think you've seen this, I mean, especially after that crushing loss in San Francisco last week, the last time we talked. I know many of you, and we talked about it on the last program, how that game was a synopsis of what could go good, what could go bad. And the really one of the big parts about this team has been the, the nature where it's become a bit of a chameleon. It's a team built by its fabric when it's perfect to score four and a half to five runs a game, get really good starting pitching, hand the ball over to the bullpen for six outs, three of which are from an elite closer in Edwin Diaz. That's what it's built for. In its essence. However, throughout the season, when you have injuries to your starting pitching and your bullpen, and at some point, hopefully the offense stays healthy, but earlier in the year, whether it was the weather, the humidor, getting into a sink because of the lockout, adjusting to New York, whatever, they weren't hitting. Now they're scoring nearly six runs a game in May, but they weren't hitting. They're about where they need to be, where the calculator wants them to be, which is about 5.2, 5.3 runs per game. But they've been able to now win different types of games, 13 to 5 games, bludgeon opponents, win a game against the Phillies 5-4, win a game against the Phillies 8-6 when their starting pitching failed them, when their bullpen failed them, when Adovino failed them, they still found a way to win. And that's how a championship team is. Does it mean the blueprint is the blueprint? We know what the perfect uh, way to go about each and every game is for the New York Mets. Six to seven innings of strong pitching, limited, uh, you know, limit those bullpen uh, outs to six to eight, and you score your five runs and away you go. But that's not always going to happen. And good teams, teams that are able to survive and thrive during adversity, find ways to be, I guess, a chameleon. Now, one of the biggest things as we get into what do the Mets need phase, which we've thought about, is we've all talked about bullpen, and, and perhaps they'll even need a starter depending on how the health progresses of their two big aces and Tyler McGill. But we've talked about maybe the need for a bat. And a bat that potentially would fill that DH role because it's been very disappointing. Look, I'm not going to get a lot into Dom Smith. He should have been sent down weeks ago. And I don't think we're going to hear from Dom. I know that Andy Martino says we'll hear from Dom Smith again. I just don't see where he fits on this squad other than a backup defensive first baseman. And he's a left-handed pinch hitter and first baseman with no power who doesn't hit. They don't need that. I don't know if Nick Plummer's for real, but right now Nick Plummer deserves to stay. Okay? But I will tell you, and J.D. got a couple of hits today. He's the next one on the clock. And very well, he might be the guy, you know, similar to Xavier Nady back in 2006 that may be part of this thing for a little bit and then goes somewhere else and gets success when he plays every day but brings in an important piece. What I will say is this. J.D. better hit like he hit in the second half of 2019 in that D.H. spot because right now... I think your best lineup has Luis Guillerme playing second base because there is enough offense, even when they're not all clicking. And right now, they're pretty much all clicking. Let's face it. 
Lindor's been a monster, an RBI machine. You know, now he's in the pantheon with Piazza. Maybe he is worth $35 million. Maybe the maybe that old narrative, you got to change the bingo card. I told you I was giddy. Um, Luis Guillermo's defense, his contact approach to hitting, again, a guy that does a lot of little things. You look up, you're like, he's got a 900 OPS. He doesn't hit home runs. He doesn't hit a lot of doubles. But he does. He does it maybe not sexy. Maybe it's a little flare in the gap or a dunk down the line. I'll tell you. And you could go back and you could probably find it if you go way back. It's probably from 2017, 2018. Think about when Rosario, probably 2018 when Rosario came, his first full year. I said back then, give me a guy like Guillermo, how Guillermo profiles, really good defense, contact, gets on base, take pitches over Rosario, who had no instincts for the game. I said that back then. Now, obviously, it's taken him time to figure it out. And he even talked about it a little bit, how inconsistent play and young players. This is where sometimes learning at the big league level is rough. When you don't get playing time, young players need at-bats. Maybe at the end, that's what Don Smith will need, and he's going to get that somewhere else if that's where he's going to get it because, honestly, he could have had it here as DH, and he blew it. But I digress. Um, To me, I think the need of a bat may be mitigated by Guillermo, and if you ask me, I'd rather have the defense at second. McNeil's playing a great left field. You know, you could always switch it around, you know, and put him at second and maybe... Give him a rest here and there. But I think Guillaume, McNeil in left, Nimmo in center, Marte in right, you know, Canna could DH. You could put Canna at DH, or you could put McNeil at DH. You could move him around, especially because McNeil has some leg issues. But you could make that DH spot a rotating thing. That means JD doesn't get the at-bats, and I'm not so sure JD plays well without consistent at-bats. But right now, there's nothing about JD's offensive game, even though he's percolated the last couple of days, which says you should take the defense of Guillaume out and put him in. You could even argue that Escobar, uh, at third base, Guillermo deserves to play over him, and he's the free agent acquisition, although he's, his bat is starting to get going. You know, it makes me wonder a little bit, watching Escobar, is he a pile-on type of offensive player? Now, he got a big hit on a Sunday, big hit, approached that at bat well, knew the guy was going to throw him off speed, hung back on that a little bit, but he's been getting blown away by fastballs. You worry a little bit about that. So you could make that argument. I think since spring training started, Buck has had a sh- uh, an eye, a liking, to Guillerme, so I'm not surprised he's got at-bats. I mean, he's a throwback kind of player. And that's Buck's a throwback kind of manager. So, you know, that's something that I think we can look at and 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 maybe he's part of this. What do they need? They may have what they need right now in Guillerme. We'll see. We'll see. And then they might not need to go out and get, uh, you know, J.D. Martinez or Nelson Cruz or Josh Bell or whatever, you know? You know, there's that. Now, Heading and looking forward. Let's get past the getting this. Let's put a little bit of a, a, you know, let's get back to reality here. Because we're always about very balanced and very mature conversation here on the Talking Mets podcast. Who are the Dodgers? We know they won the championship in that BS season in 2020. We know they've been winning. I mean, they're basically the modern day Yankees for the National League. I mean, they're, they're doing, other than the fact they didn't win four World Series in five years, they're doing everything that the Yankees did in the late 90s. Funny thing is the Mets beat them. Let's beat him in 2015 in what was, in my opinion, the best series out of the three of them. Better than the Cubs series, obviously better than the World Series in that 2015 run. So you're looking at a team that right now, uh, if the Mets had all their pieces on the rotation, I think both teams are pretty even there. They're missing Kershaw, of course, but both even there. Offensively, they look very similar, where they have some component type of pieces and offensive pieces, and then there's stars like Mookie Betts, um, 
uh, you know, uh, Freddie Freeman, of course, Trey Turner. Those are the big three uh, guys like that. Um, the bullpen, that's where I think this thing gets interesting. So you have this, these two teams that are very similar. And then you get to the bullpen. The Dodgers probably have an advantage there when you look at their, their you know, their, their arms leading up to their closer. Guys that high strikeout rate, don't walk a lot of guys. Their starters go deep into games, so they probably need less bullpen innings than the Mets do. Right now, I would say the Dodgers have a huge advantage over the Mets because they don't, Mets are, the Mets rotation doesn't have their big aces. So right now, maybe it's unfair to say that there's, they're even in that spot, but I think when everything's said and done, they will be. But here's where I think when everything, and we're not going to know all about it because we're not going to see them mano in mano completely with Kershaw on one side in the rotation, and then obviously DeGrom and Scherzer on the other side. Where I think they converge and where I think the difference can be, and the difference can be when they, if they meet in the postseason. See, I almost said when I am getting getting. And you may even see it the next four days because I think there's going to be games that are close in the ninth inning and there'll be one team with a lead and then another team battling back. Craig Kimbrell, who blew, I think, a save last night, the Pirates, and now that's the other thing. The Pirates are, are having one of the, They had that last year against the Mets where they got hot. They're having that little run where they're going in and spoiling a home team's time because there's no pressure on a bad team. Um, Craig Kimbrell, I've always been lukewarm about. Now, I remember last year I said maybe the Mets should make him part of the package with Baez. They could use some extra bullpen help. But that was more as an expensive setup guy that could back up Diaz if Diaz implodes. That was never the guy that I would say that's the guy I want the Mets to have. Because I, I, I always thought Kimbrell was a guy who could lose command, walk a ton of guys, a little bit overrated. And sure enough, below league average this year, ERA close to five, um, still striking out a ton of guys, but the walks are, you know, high as they always are. I mean, he's very similar to Diaz in that sense. Uh, you know, he's given up six home runs. So, uh, you know, excuse me, what am I saying? He's got given up. He's given up a home, last year, he gave him five home runs. He's given, he hasn't given up the, the kind of home runs that Diaz has, but you look at it, he's a guy that, and I haven't watched them day in and day out, that I think when you put Diaz versus Kimbrell and you ask me pick one, I give the Mets an advantage there, especially the Diaz of this year. And when it comes down to a postseason series, we all know, I don't care who's on the other side of the rotation for the Mets. I don't care who's on the other side of the rotation for the Dodgers. It's going to come down to the eighth and ninth inning. And guess what? It's going to be Edwin Diaz or Craig Kimbrell on the mound in a close game. And they're going to have to get the job done. And I think this weekend, we'll see depending on how the games play out and how close they are, we're going to see who can get the job done. And I think that's where the Mets, and we'll look, the Dodgers have tons of money like the Mets have tons of money. They very well may go out, find a young arm, or have somebody uh, move into that spot uh, as a closer, and they'll, they'll kick. Uh, they don't care about money in Kimbrell's uh, uh, salary. You know, maybe it'll be, uh, uh, you know, who knows? I'm not going to speculate. You know, Daniel Hudson, maybe. I mean, he's a guy that closed for the Nationals when they went to the World Series. I'm just throwing things out there. Uh, David Price, a guy that, you know, potentially, uh, you know, starter, all-star, you know, maybe he comes in. I, again, I'm just giving you kind of like, there are so many names on this thing, so I, I'll, I'll caution you, but the closer right now out of the both teams, the big advantage I think is Edwin Diaz, and he showed it again today. I had a scout text me after the game, a guy who's a good friend, knows Diaz well, talk to him all the time. He said that's an 80-grade slider that he struck Soto out on. An elite, at one day, Soto will probably be in conversation for the Hall of Fame. 
So tons to get excited about. Really looking forward to this series with the Dodgers. This is, ex- I mean, and the Mets have not house money, but you could breathe a little bit, guys, and enjoy this series because you're not in a position where you're like, ah, oh, every day they got to win or, you know, they're going X number of games back of the Braves or, you know, they're falling behind 500. You're not in that position with the Dodgers. And they're oh, the Dodgers are owed by the Mets. Last year they, they caught the Mets. They beat the, the bejesus out of them because the Mets were in that tailspin. They were, you know, they, you're talking about the two best pitching teams, the Giants and the Dodgers, basically knocked the Mets out of the playoffs last year. They smothered a Mets offense that was already on life support. But then if you go back pre-pandemic to that series in early, the Diaz blew a save in that series, I still think, and I remember it came up kind of in the sign-stealing book with Martino, I said, and people laughed at me on Twitter, I thought the Dodgers had signs because they were just on everything that the Mets had. So out of the Mets, I'd, maybe I'd use the, I'm not the, the pitch tech, is it called, or whatever the technology in the hat is. The pitch, I can't remember. Why? My brain is foggy. I'm just too excited. Uh, maybe you want to use that because who knows what the Dodgers got going on because last time the Mets played a big series pre-pandemic at Dodger Stadium, I think it was a four-game set as well. It you know went haywire because it seemed like they knew what was coming, but that's a whole other story for another day. So really fun stuff. Uh, this is a fun show, having tons of fun here. Um, but we're not done. You know, we're not just going to start, you know, with the, the the current Mets team. We're not just going to talk about the Dodgers series. I'm kind of setting up the Dodgers series. I'm going to listen, and I'll say it now. I know we're going to we'll, we'll do it on the outro here. Um, definitely going to have a show after the Dodger game. I know it's a late game on Sunday at four o'clock. Definitely going to have a show recapping this series. But you know, I think you know where everything stands here. Mets have built a really good foundation. Exciting Memorial Day weekend into the uh, the Memorial Day week, post-Memorial Day week. And now you have two teams, even without the health on both sides, that are very, very even. What will be the deciding factor, the differentiating factor? Is it experience of the Dodgers? Is it the closer, which I think is a big difference? I think the Mets have the advantage there. Right now the Dodgers have advantages in the pitching department all over because the Mets don't have their full squad. But the Mets still have the better closer. And I think the Mets, even in this compromised state, are going to keep these games close enough where that might be the difference. And that's where this team that has come back time and time and time again. And that, forget about analytics. When you get down and you never really feel like you're out of a game, there's a certain momentum that builds an energy. You guys have seen it in seasons like 06 and 2015 and the late 80s and 99 and 2000 where... It just, it's hard to describe. It's not an analytical conversation. It's a feeling. And that's where this Mets team is right now. And now there's a really interesting test this June. We got to see what this team needs. We know that this team is a tough team. We know this team is a chameleon team that could win and, and, and beat you and compete many different ways. They're professional. They do the little things. But what do they need to make this happen and really get to the promised land? Well, we're going to start to find out over the next 50 or so games. And what a better way to start it against the best of the best in the National League and the team that quite honestly could be the best in baseball. Sorry, Yankees. The Yankees are a conversation for another day, guys. Um, the L.A. Dodgers, who Steve Cohen has said from the day he took over, that's the organization that I aspire to be. Not a bad, uh, not a bad benchmark. Let's put it that way. All right, let's take a quick break. When I return, we're going to remember 10 years ago the Santana no-hitter We're going to address, again, one last time, some misinformation. We do misinformation, just like Twitter. We have our own misinformation department here at the Talking Mets podcast. So sit back. There's more. We'll be back with this and that 
and whatever else we got going on. I'm really giddy, guys. I got to tell you, I'm all, I'm all discombobulated. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. And a fly ball deep left field. Back goes Baxter onto the track. He makes the catch. What a play. And Baxter may be hurt. He's stuck him out. It has happened. In their 51st season, Johan Santana has thrown the first no-hitter in New York Mets history. I'm sure it gives you chills. And uh, look, uh, we talked a lot about the Santana situation. Not really the Santana situation, but when the Mets had their combined no-hitter against the Phillies earlier this year, we kind of dived into the Santana no-hitter. And I briefly talked about how important that night was. But I'll set it up here. The Santana no-hitter is not up there with winning the pennant in 2015 or in 2000. But after those two moments, and I'm thinking post-1986 here, because I've always said I was a little bit young for 86, so I can't really count that one. But after those two pennants, and and I would even say for me personally, nothing against the 9-11 home run in Piazza, but I would even put this Santana no-hitter ahead of the Piazza home run. The Piazza home run is kind of a different thing in 9-11. It's, all, it's because it's more emotional because of the the situation in our world. So I kind of don't want to even compare it. But this Santana no-hitter for me personally, and it doesn't mean that it should be the same for you, so I don't want you to get all angry at me, is right underneath those two pennants, the 2000 pennant and the 2015 pennant. And the reason is is that it was such an elusive feat. And I remember David Cohn. I remember going to a couple of starts in 1998 when Rick Reed went into the seventh inning with a no-hitter. I think one, Wade Boggs broke up with the Rays. Another one might have been Cliff Floyd of the Marlins hitting a home run to break up. It was almost like within a month of each other. I was at a couple of games where I thought Rick Reed was about to throw a no-hitter. David Cohn, um, so many one-hitters. We had Steve Traxel on the show talking about not that his were near misses, but how you know he gives up a hit early against the Angels, and he gives a one-hitter, and then a, a pitcher from the Rockies breaks up another uh, near-no-hitter the same season of 2003, a, a no-man's-land season. I mean, Pedro Martinez came close, I believe, against either the Astros or the Dodgers during his tenure. Um, you know, Matt Harvey, Jacob deGrom, you know, go on and on and on. Even Noah Syndergaard, n- not really even coming close with those big-name pitchers. So when Santana did it, I was with a friend, and it was a night where I wasn't planning on spending a lot of time talking baseball. But as I watched it, I think I said uh, on my phone, on the app, I noticed around the sixth inning, uh, I'm like, well, this is something going on. And I watched the last three innings, and I got to tell you, the euphoria of that no-hitter and the stress and the tension of the last six outs or so, especially after the seventh inning, especially after the Molina catch. Um. It will go down as a moment in Mets history that outside of more pennants and more World Series, and I don't know if the Mets start winning a lot of pennants, let's not get ahead of ourselves, not everyone is created equal, this moment will be up there because it was the first. The first is always different. The first championship is always different. The first no-hitter is always different. And I was pumped, and I, I kind of got into, I told you this on the on the program earlier this year with the, the combined no-hitter, but it wasn't the same as Santana. 
it wasn't the same. Now, the interesting thing about Santana from a, a narrative driven, you know, the late Roger Angel just passed, but, you know, great writer, great, you know, author and great authors and great writers kind of, I know we like anti-narrative here, but there's also these narratives that are spun professionally and in a way that make the story flow. And it may not be correlation, but it's interesting. And here's where I'll say, look at all the six degrees of New York and Mets separation within that game. You have Carlos Beltran almost breaking it up. And if replay was available, and I know fair foul, I don't know how they com- yeah, they don't know how they completely do it. I think there's isn't there a rule like it has to go past third base for them to replay it? So this would have probably been a replay. Correct me, you could email me, you could tell me. I don't I mean I, I should Buck would lecture me if I was in a press conference. He would say, you should know your rules, Mike. Um, but Carlos Beltran, former Met, big-time free agent signing. Here he is years later, controversial ending to his managerial career that never started. Would have broken up the no-hitter. It was close. We could argue and debate that till the cows come home. Probably was fair, but it was close. So there's the Met connection on the Cardinals with Beltran, who was uh, in his first season in St. Louis and was less than a year removed from being a Met. You have Yadier Molina crushed the Mets' hearts. Mets almost signed his brother Benji before Paul Duke, if you remember, in 2006. I think Omar had his eyes on that. So that's an... I just thought of that. That's a little, a little interesting. He, he nearly breaks the Mets' hearts that night, but it's a kid from Queens, Mike Baxter, who, because of analytics, because of his on-base percentage, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, he came from the San Diego organization, and I think the only reason the Mets were even in on him is because Paul D. Podesta came from that organization and knew him. And D. Podesta was an assistant GM under Sandy when they had the... You know, three mo- the GMs with Sandy and and JP Ricciardi and and Paul D Podesta and Baxter. Not only is he this no name, which is so much Mets history, where guys like George Theodore, Mackie Sasser, and go on and on and on and on. No name players become cult heroes because fans fall in love with them, just like I have, for whatever reason. Baxter becomes a hero, but not only is he because he's this no-name guy trying to make it, who's, who really is a synopsis of the franchise. He's from Queens, and he's a guy that says, hey, I used to call WFAN Mike from Whitestone. I mean, you can't make it up. And he's the one that saves the game, really, because there really was no near hits after that. Santana took care of business after that, and he probably ruined his career over it. Now, if anybody's career ended that night, it was Mike Baxter. That's This is the Mike, the Talking Mets misinformation board talking. It wasn't Terry Collins and the 134 pitches that Santana threw that night. It was Mike Baxter. Because Mike Baxter, going into that game, was actually playing pretty well. Uh, as a matter of fact, that season, Mike Baxter, uh, he had a 791 OPS. He had a 120 OPS+. plus. Uh, he wasn't hitting for a lot of uh, uh, his average wasn't high, but his on base was high. Uh, he was he was becoming a nice component piece. He was starting to come into his own. He was a guy in the minor leagues that just a year before had hit 18 home runs, driven in 72 runs, uh, had a 380 on base percentage, stole 20 bases. He was 25 years old, and he could have maybe been something. Now I you know you'd have to get Baxter and interview him and hear what he has to say. I mean, he hurt his shoulder, and then he never was the same again, and he kind of fizzled out after he left the Mets. He bounced around with the Dodgers and the Cubs, and and away you go. But that's whose career might have ended that night and who might have sacrificed his big league success for that moment in the sun. And now he's doing great things as a coach over at Vanderbilt, so God bless him on that. 
everybody likes to say, oh, Terry Collins, because Terry Collins has spun a nice narrative. And I'm not going to ruin the good feeling about Terry Collins, uh, this, this segment, by getting into a, a, a bash Terry Collins phase. But for anybody to say that the 134 pitches on that night ruined Santana's career any more than two weeks earlier, the 170 threw against the Reds in a little over six innings, and a loss, by the way, doesn't understand baseball. Or the 107 he threw a month later against the Dodgers in a win, in a shutout win, eight-inning shutout win. Okay, Anybody who, who thinks that those 134 were more stressful than the 101 against the Orioles later in the month or the 102 against the Cubs later in the month doesn't understand what Santana was coming back from. Santana was coming back from capsule surgery. After he got hurt after the 2010 season, and I think we have a lot more information and knowledge about injuries and health now than we did 12 years ago, Everybody was like, will he be able to come back from the shoulder issue? Capsules and shoulders are death sentences for pitchers. The fact that the guy came back, never mind threw a no-hitter, but actually pitched uh, about a half a season, tried coming back, couldn't do anything later in the year, doesn't understand how serious that injury is. It's basically ligaments in your shoulder. I mean, elbows are one thing. Shoulders, a lot more complex. I mean, anybody who has capsule surgery, they come back, it's, they're never going to be there. It's like the thoracic outlet. Tommy John is really the one-arm injury where you could probably come back and maybe be even better. And even that, you know, at some point, you're, 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 you're moving ligaments from different parts of the body to recreate what you were born with. So, Johan Santana's career ended after the 2010 season when he tore his, uh, his capsule. And then he retorted again after 2012, and that was it. He had a bad shoulder. He had a bad shoulder. The fact that he even came back was gravy. Tells you how hard he worked. And, you know, now you have stories coming out that when he's down in Port St. Lucie rehabbing, he's, he's helping DeGrom with a changeup. I mean, think about the six degrees and how the history of baseball and how connections with people last on. It's amazing. It's really amazing. It's, it's, it really, it's a narrative, but it really is true. Now... I don't want to start ranting and raving about Terry Collins and you know making it about how tough a decision it was for him because he's had enough PR that he's done for himself in, the, in his time in, in New York that I don't need to go back into that. You guys who listen long time know it. What I will say is this, is I think the appreciation, and, and, and I'll even go back further with Santana. You know when Santana really got hurt? This actually just came to mind. Santana probably hurt himself in 08. It started to hurt himself in 08 when he pitched with a bad knee down the stretch, probably had to compromise his mechanics. There's a guy... If you remember, Santana was brought to wipe away the stench of the 07 collapse because if the Mets had had an ace, everybody, myself included, thought they just needed one win down the stretch in 07, but they didn't have a horse that could get the job done because Pedro was no longer Pedro. Santana was supposed to wipe that away, and he was coming off a Cy Young uh, a couple of years earlier in Minnesota. And here he comes in 08. And down the stretch, the second half, he doesn't lose a game, wins four games in September, but pitches with a bad knee. And you can see, if you look at the numbers, they didn't change. There was declines after that. So that's probably when he hurt himself. But he put it all on the line. He never, he didn't have to do that. He could have said, hey, you know what? He had his contract. I don't want to hurt my arm. I want to pitch into my late 30s. I want another contract. But he didn't. That's probably when he really hurt himself. I think there should be an appreciation of who he was as a Met now. 
he's ninth all time in war as a Met uh, in his uh, two, his 2008 season. Not a total, 2008 season, ninth all time. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty good. He has his 2009 season is a top 10 Mets pitching season with guys like Degrom and 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 Seaver and Gooden and all this stuff. Uh, you can't ask for more than that, right? You can't ask for more to be in top 10. I mean, that's that's a and that's a season where he nearly dragged them to the playoffs. Now you look at him in terms of the totality. Most of his production came in that season, but he's still top 15 all time in WAR in Mets history. Uh, better than Noah Syndergaard, you know. <laughs> so let's put it that way. Better than guys like Brett Sabering and Matt Harvey and stuff, stuff, you know, guys like that. So I remember Santana for the no-hitter, but I remember him fondly for how he nearly dragged, quite literally, the Mets the postseason 08 when they really needed to, as an organization, that's when things turned bad. That collapse was a gut punch. The last 17 days of, or 17 games of 2007, Changed the trajectory of the franchise. He tried to 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 weave the Titanic away from the iceberg at the last minute, but he couldn't do it by himself. And you know history. You know what happened. You know where we are today, and you know why that yoke. And I know you guys are laughing at my accent. I think I said it pretty well. That yoke continues to be around the neck of this franchise, and why Buck Showalter and the current iteration of the Mets and Steve Cohen and Billy Epler and on and on and on are trying to change it. So it all connects. But I think that's my memory of the Santana no-hitter. That's how I remember today, 10 years ago. Uh, so it's amazing how time flies. I'm seeing Santana talking to Gilbs at the ballpark yesterday, and I'm just like, wow. He's getting old, man. I'm getting old. And uh, he's got a son throwing out the first pitch. I mean, we haven't even talked about Josh Tolley, who really was a top prospect in the Mets system, never really panned out. And actually made a name for himself because he was actually pretty good at catching Ari Dickey's knuckleball. Not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. So uh, that's my thoughts on the Santana no-hitter. Uh, I think the Mets continue to do a really good job at history. Uh, I, I, and I've said this. I've spoken to people within the organization. I've said, try not to overdo it. You don't want to do everything all at once. I know they're looking at retired numbers. I know Keith's retired number is uh, later this summer. Long overdue. I know they're looking at others. It'll be interesting to see where they go, what direction they go. You, I have my opinion. You have your opinion. I think we'll talk more about that when Keith's number retirement comes up. And I'm trying. I know we had Bob Clappish on, and we talked a lot about that when it was announced over the winter. But I, I'm thinking of doing something when the time comes. Maybe getting some, uh, maybe one of Keith's former teammates or what have you. Um, I was actually thinking about, you know bringing our buddy Joe Bono from Isles blog on, but he unfortunately he's a little under the weather. Not COVID. Sounds like he just got a little under the weather. Uh, and he couldn't make it because he was in the ballpark that night. But I think ultimately I wanted to share my memories, share what I was uh, experiencing um, that night and my thoughts and the narrative, all those connections, those six degrees of separation, and how the Santana signing and trade lives on in some ways with Jacob deGrom and the knowledge. I mean, think about it. Maybe Jacob DeGrom never becomes Jacob DeGrom if Santana doesn't get hurt, if he's not down there teaching him, and Santana's never hurt and playing in Port St. Lucie if the Mets don't make that trade and don't sign him. I mean, if they don't collapse, what happens? I mean, it's just amazing. Maybe I'm getting a little too philosophical, but it's amazing how the world works. So anyway, that's it. We'll take a quick break. When I return, we'll wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this.
It's exciting to reminisce about Johan Santana's no-hitter, the first in Mets history. But do we remember who quite literally put his career on the line to preserve the moment? Mike Puma, New York Post beat reporter and author of the book of These Walls Could Talk, certainly does. 3-1 coming to Molina. And a fly ball deep left field. Back goes Baxter onto the track. He makes the catch! What a play! And Baxter may be hurt. Yeah, and the thing was, Baxter at that point was just starting to get some uh, decent playing time for the Mets, and he had a he had a pretty good OPS. He was, you know, he was a lefty bat. He was he was starting to produce a little bit. It was the it was kind of the peak of his career there. Uh, you know that that previous two months, of the, you know, because that was June first. So the first couple of months that 2012 season was the peak of his career. He's he's starting to play, and then uh, he gets hurt making that catch he's never the same again you know he, he, he tried to come back uh he was with the cubs actually in 15 uh uh the year the the mess went to the world series and uh just just never got it back and it uh you know it, the, the thing about it is at least you, you go out and you're remembered for something big and you know, Mets fans will never forget Mike Baxter. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, fun show. This is one of those times where you really look forward to I always look forward to being on the air. But after a nice winning streak, dramatic wins, big road trip, Mets history... Um, can't ask for more to come on the air, and and especially with you guys who continue, the audience continues to grow, and I I mean that. I'm not just saying that to BS you guys. Uh, It is growing. Love the interaction. I know you guys get crazy with some of the things I say and do on Twitter, and sometimes I do things that drive you nuts, but that's what this is all about. Opinion. I want you to think. I want you to challenge. I want you to have fun, and I had to get the... I threw in one more Mike Baxter thing. If you guys, if you've been listening, last year, Mike Puma, who uh, wrote that great book, beat reporter for the New York Post uh, uh, for the Mets. And I've had my issues with Puma and some of his antics, but, you know, he's been doing this a long time and he was kind enough to come on the show. Um, you know, he, he he talked about that, uh, Baxter. And and I think that's, that is one of the more underplayed stories of that no-hitter. The guy putting his career on the line to save the no-hitter and his connection to the Mets. You know, you can't ask for more than that. So, look, you guys know what's ahead of us. All of us here, as we watch the Mets, and when I say us, I mean us as a fan base in the media watching this. I'm not a fanboy here. I'm not trying to put my Mets hat on. I'm trying to be. I'm. I. I consider myself independent media. You may not think so, but I think so. Uh, Dodgers series, go to San Diego, day off, and then ra- uh, wrap it up with LA. Might even see our old friend Noah Syndergaard. We'll see how that all falls through. Angels were hot. Not so much now, but you're going to see Trout. You're going to see Otani. You're going to see this Dodgers juggernaut. You're going to see what's going on with Manny Machado and the Padres. Uh, Never easy going out to the West Coast. Obviously, from a viewing experience, you guys might want to stay up late. Um, Sometimes I think I wonder if it's better because you get to... You know, go to work, come back, have a nice dinner, maybe watch, you know, spend some time with the wife or the girlfriend or the significant other, whoever you're with, and then you can get to the game and, like, your day is done and you don't have to worry about distractions. So there is some charm to the West Coast, but I know that it's a ha- – I mean, look, you got to get up early. I mean, I tend to go to bed late. I could stay up till 12, 1 o'clock and still get up at 5.30 in the morning. I got three dogs, so, you know. When I had four dogs, we were now I got three dogs, and they still get me up. You know, they don't they don't eat by seven a.m. and that's on a weekend. They're already say, "Hey, 
knock, knock, time to get up. And I'm sure those who have in the audience who have kids, especially young kids, I mean, you got it worse. So I'm not complaining. Believe me. God bless you that how you guys do it. So anyway, I uh, want to thank everybody for joining me. Uh, the, the, the schedule is we're going to be back on Sunday. We're going to recap the Dodgers series. And then I know I think they're going to be on Sunday Night Baseball the following week against the Angels. So we'll probably kick it to the off day. But I'll be back on Sunday. So I, I always say we're playing the schedule. We're trying to evolve here at the Talking Mets podcast. We're playing the schedule a little bit, and I think it's important, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I came to you today after this great homestand. All right, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your night. Enjoy your day leading into the big series against the Dodgers. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast soon. Till then, keep watching the guys over at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network over at risingapple.com. You take care, and I'll be back soon. Bye, everybody. Our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.